This is the You Need to Know Podcast with your host, Tommy B. Hello and welcome to the You Need to Know Podcast. It's difficult not to be aware of the tragic death, murder of George Floyd, uh, which at the taping of this podcast, all four officers have been charged and arrested awaiting trial in Minnesota. Not only is our country reacting with protest, not just across America, but throughout the world, we're doing this against the backdrop of a pandemic, COVID-19. In this episode, I get a world perspective from Wakar Rizvi. Uh, Wakar is a journalist, award-winning TV host, news anchor, and political analyst from the UAE, Canada, and now he's living in Pakistan. Thanks for taking the time to listen and enjoy the podcast. Uh, don't forget, give feedback on the podcast. Reach out to me and also rate the show. I'm here with uh, Wakar Rizvi. And, and Wakar is a journalist, uh, award-winning TV host, news anchor, political analyst. And um, interesting thing about, uh, about this is Wakar and I connected on LinkedIn, social media. And, and Wakar, um, if, if there's a lesson in this, be careful who you connect with. Because <laughs> you may be called. Hey, well, this worked out well. This worked out well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and what I liked about your profile and, and in seeing uh, some of the reports that you made, you have a deep understanding of, of global affairs. Uh, you're currently in Pakistan, correct? Yes, I am. Yeah, it's my first time living and working here. I've, I've been around the world a lot, as you well know, as we've spoken about earlier. I was born in the UAE. I grew up in Canada. I've lived in Iran as well for 13 years. So I have a pretty good understanding, I think, of, of certain places in the world, uh, including North America. When I reached out to you, the reason I reached out to you was r- really with one primary question. I, w- I was curious as to why the human rights organizations around the country had not become more engaged in what was happening uh, in America. And I think at the time it hadn't escalated to the point uh, to where, as we take this podcast, we're looking at uh, not only one officer uh, being being charged, but now we have all all four, uh, the, the primary yeah. officer and the three. So now when you go back and I, I backtrack and I take a look at an Amnesty International or, or, or some of the other human rights organizations, uh, I'm seeing more activity as it pertains to this particular case. So so let me ask you, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll start there. Why do you think those organizations were slow to become as involved as maybe the American press? Because I think, you know, we've been here so many times before. That's the first point, right? That we've been here so many times before when it comes to, unfortunately, police brutality towards African-Americans. So it's not the first time we've we've seen this sort of situation play out, right, on the streets of the U.S. So I imagine that a lot of these organizations were taking a wait-and-see approach. And then secondly, and I think the biggest issue is obviously the fact that with Donald Trump in the White House, he's very aggressive, right? So if you if you come after him, or if not even after him, but just after the United States, where you say, okay, the U.S. has this issue of systemic racism, uh, you would never know how he's going to react, right? So case in point, as you well know, Thomas, is, is the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, my other Prime Minister. And the 22-second pause when he was asked about, you know, his reaction to what's happening in the U.S., that's very telling, that's an ally, right? Wow. Uh, yeah, he, he paused for 22 seconds. I mean, that video is viral online. You can check it out after this. Um, and I encourage viewers to check, uh, listeners to check it out as well, because, you know, he was asked about it and he paused for almost 22 seconds, completely silent. And he was biting his lip before he made a statement. And he was very careful not to mention Donald Trump's name. 
So that's very, very telling, right? Um, that an ally of the United States, uh, you know, who has its own issues, mind you, with the African community within Canada too, mind you. But uh, he had a very hard time responding to a very basic question, which I imagine leaders around the world have been asked by their respective media. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I mean, if, if you have an ally who has that hard a time responding to something this basic, then you can only imagine what human rights groups are going through where they were like, okay, should we, should we not? Now we've had even the UN rights chief, Michelle Bachelet, as you well know, she's also spoken about the fact that now we have endemic racism within the U.S., which has been exposed um, I think everyone's become more courageous because of the fact that there are protesters out of the streets in such large numbers. So that's given everybody that sort of courage to come out and say possibly what they were thinking. Also, when we initially connected, there was not uh, there were not international protests. Now we're looking at protests from Berlin, London, um, Spain. I've seen uh, any other countries on that list that I'm missing that um, are, are... Paris, yeah. I mean, Paris has been huge. London has been huge, as you know. And Paris, has, you know, France has its own issues with, with systemic racism. Uh, for anybody that knows about racism within Europe, France has, you know, major issues with its uh, minority and ethnic minority communities, uh, especially the Black community. In 2016, I think we had a case there, right? Um, I forget the name, the first name, but the last name was Traore, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, a young guy who had been killed by police, um, Basically, he's, he died within a police vehicle, and that had created many issues at that time, too. There were riots, uh, protests at that time, and a lot of people are now reviving that case, um, of course, in honor of George Floyd as well. But uh, France, you know, is very, very strict when it comes to its its policies and how it's abused racism, because there are no statistics in France about this sort of thing. So um, the French are sort of taking, you know, encouragement from the from the Americans who are out in the streets and trying to then bring, you know, uh, some spotlight to their own issues. And I think that that's what's happening with many countries around the world where each individual country, that's an important thing to remember, right? That the U.S. has its issues with systemic racism Mm -hmm. and all the rest of us do too. It's the the honest truth. You know, it's very easy to point fingers at the U.S. and say, oh, you're uniquely bad. Mm -hmm. But it isn't uniquely bad. It's just that the U.S. always has this the stance of American exceptionalism. We are better than the rest of you. Um, and that, I think, is what really irks people around the world uh, in the sense that, you know, listen, it's okay to admit that we all have the same issue. You know, it's okay to admit that all of us have racism within us in the sense that, you know, it's an issue and we're going to deal with it now. You know, we're admitting that we have this issue. But I think that with the U.S., it's been, it's been a lot, um, it's been a lot uh, it's one, been a lot less reticent to admitting that fact. I think. Understood. And, and I'm going to ask you this yeah. question only because in, in viewing some of your reports, uh, I, I've seen you do reports on uh, Islamophobia. Um, you really key in or focus in on racism uh, and biases across the world. Um, how yeah. would you how do you compare America's plight? How do you think it compares? And, and one of the other things, do you see any solidarity? Well, of course, we, we've talked about the solidarity in, in mm-hmm. protesting. But uh, specifically, can you point to any solidarity with black Americans as you do your interviews and talk to people throughout the world? Definitely. I mean, on the second point, yes, for sure. But I think that there's always this disconnect about uh, what the black community around the world, and again, I'm going to speak about around the world because I think it's unfair to just hone in on the United 
States. Like, um, because I grew up in Canada, I know myself uh, about how the Black community in Canada is treated. The statistics in a city like Toronto, which is one of the major cities in Canada, are horrible. Like, uh, I think I was reading yesterday that a Black Canadian is 20 times more likely to be stopped by a policeman in the city of Toronto than a white Canadian. Um, you know, those statistics are, they, they boggle the mind, right? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, yes. I mean, I think that there is solidarity, but I think there's still very much a disconnect about what the reality is for the Black community and how long the Black community has been dealing with this, right? So for a lot of us, I mean, even myself as a journalist, when I go back to the first time I probably heard about brutality or, you know, racism towards Black Americans, um, was probably somewhere around 2009, if I'm completely honest. Hmm. But it's not like it, it's, it's not like it started in 2009. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's been happening for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. And that's what's something that a lot of us are disconnected from that history. So we just see what's happening now. And we see that just in the now. And we don't realize that this has been happening for so long that, you know, all of that history needs to be taken into context to really understand what this community has gone through. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, uh, on the first point, yes, I I have a major connection with racism myself because I've been, you know, the target of racism and I've, I've experienced a lot of racism myself as a Pakistani mm-hmm. um, or a Pakistani origin, I should say. Um, be it growing up in the UAE, be it growing up in Canada, be it working in Iran, I've experienced major racism, right? I've been held back. There's been a glass ceiling over my head always. Um, there's been Islamophobia towards the women in my family because, you know, they wear the headscarf or they choose to wear the headscarf. It's their own choice to do so. Um, my wife wears the headscarf, again, her own choice. And, uh, you know, you, the stares she gets whenever we visit the US and or Canada, it's quite telling. Or even Pakistan sometimes, to be honest. I mean, we have Islamophobia within Muslims too, which is also an interesting mm-hmm. dynamic. Um, and then beyond that, I've seen racism towards others. So I've seen racism growing up towards the Black community around me in Canada. Um, I've seen it even in places like Iran towards people who are of color. Uh, even in Pakistan, you know, we have this major issue here of, you know, whitening skin whitening creams, right? There's a billion plus dollar industry here of skin yeah, whitening there, there, creams, and, you know? In Africa uh, as well. In Africa, it's... it's yeah. It's, it's very prevalent. Yeah. I, I, yeah. So, I mean, so, I mean, and again, a lot of that is a carryover of colonialism, right? Um, because, you know, again, it's easy to just look at the United States today and say, okay, this is a U.S. problem. But actually, colonialism brought in this idea that white is beautiful or white is right, if we, if we may use that, and black is somehow, you know, not beautiful and is somehow criminal or dirty. Or I don't know, I don't know what the right word is specifically, yeah. but I think that there are a lot of negative connotations, unfortunately, which are engraved in a lot of our minds. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, it, a lot of times, even within the diaspora, and I've seen a lot of people on Twitter, thankfully, within the Pakistani diaspora, for example, who live in New York or in other places in the U.S., will be like, listen, our own family members will tell us, don't go to black communities within these respective cities because there's high crime rates there. Stay away. You know, they'll, they'll rob you if you go there, you know. Um, and... Uh, very unfortunate, right? Because then we, again, it's it, the disconnect that continues. You continue to live this bubble existence. Okay. Well, you know, as a, as a journalist and and also someone who actually, as you, you've described, uh, dealt with racism on a personal level, uh, do you see any anything loosening? I mean, I've, I'm, I'm in my mid-50s, okay? And you can imagine I was the group or the generation of promise 
coming out of the civil rights organization, I mean, or the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. So for my generation, it's very discouraging because I, I, I refer to us as the Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers generation. Everything's going to be better now. Mm -hmm. And candidly, we're still having yeah. conversations about things that we talked about coming out of 1960, or out of the 60s into the mm -hmm. 70s, which is discouraging. But do you see uh, as, as a journalist covering race, uh, traveling through different countries, um, do you see anything loosening? And also, just as you speak with people, do you see any opportunities for change so you know i think i think a lot of the young generation uh, so like my generation and or younger like fresh graduates and or those in college right now uh, even in a country like pakistan for example i'll take that as an example just because you know i can probably speak about them as the latest people i've been around um they do they, they do realize that a lot of the racism that they have within their own ranks uh, and within their parents' generations possibly is wrong. And I'm speaking specifically racism towards those of dark skin color, um, because of that then leads to racism towards just black community around the world too, right? So Africans and or otherwise. So uh, even within Pakistan on social media, there has been this outpouring of, okay, sure, let's criticize the U.S. for its systemic racism, but let's also talk about the systemic racism or just the racism within our own ranks. So you can't, for example, like just today, I read a, a tweet of a girl in Pakistan and she was like, listen, you can't both be for Black Lives Matter movement and at the same time say, for example, uh, that I want my son to have a fair white skinned wife, for example. You know what I mean? You can't you can't be aiming. You can't. Those two things don't work parallel. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so you need to you need to fix your standards right of what you think is acceptable. And again, this is all very engraved in it. So it's not like all of the above people are bad and or hate black people. It's not that. It's just it's it's been engraved into us over those years of colonialism that is just now almost part of who we are, unfortunately. Yeah. And I imagine that's how it is, almost is for the average American as well, like those who are non-black Americans, um, as in they're not necessarily doing this consciously, it's almost unconscious bias and racism towards the black community. And I think that then is, is the huge issue. You were talking about optimism versus pessimism. And I think that, I don't know, how does one change one's mind in that sense, right? And I, I don't have the answer for that. I just think that uh, we're at a process and we're continually going through this process where I think a lot of people thought that, oh, we are now in a post-racial America, civil rights movement is over, but I don't think it was really ever over. I think we're still very much uh, in the next step and the next step and the next step. And I don't know when the end result will come where we'll finally have equality or proper justice. Um, but I think that we're possibly reaching there at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Still lots of work to do. Still lots of work to do. Yeah. Uh, yes. Wakar Rizvi, thank you so much, man, for taking the time. Nine hour difference. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I really appreciate Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Pakistan and uh, journalist, award-winning TV host, news anchor, political analyst. Uh, how do people check out your work? How do people follow you? Uh, well, I'm, I'm big on Facebook, so I have my own Facebook page. It's wakar.rzv. Uh, so um, that's the best way to check me out, facebook.com slash wakar.rzv. I'll send you the address too. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn. I'm pretty much on a lot of social media. I'm just not on Snapchat. So, um, But Instagram, 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 Twitter, you know, LinkedIn, all of the above. So, Excellent. 
Wakar, thank you so much, man. Have a great evening. Take care. Thank you, Thomas. You too. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the You Need to Know podcast with your host, Tommy B. The You Need to Know podcast is a production of the Castropolis Podcast Network. Thanks for listening.